I love when a book or a movie takes a completely unexpected turn. You're going along and you think you've got everything all figured out and then suddenly you're blindsided and you I had no idea that was going to happen. It just totally takes you by surprise. And I especially love it in the scriptures because there are times where you're moving along through a text and all of a sudden it just spins you another direction and you go, well, I didn't see that one coming. And we're in a section in Isaiah now where that truly happens, really page after page. From chapter 49 to chapter 55, we're in this section that is often termed the servant songs. Uh, Chapter 49 contains actually the second servant song. The first one was in chapter 42, but now we're in a block of text where Isaiah spends all of this time talking about this servant who is to come, and what he's going to do. Now what makes chapter 49 especially unique is the servant himself speaks. And what he does in this chapter is he tells everybody what the Lord told him and then tells everybody what he's going to do. And in the middle of that, completely blindsides the audience as he speaks to them. So just with that in mind, let's read Isaiah 49. And uh, we're only going to be looking at the first six verses. Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand He hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In His quiver He hid me away. And He said to me, You are My servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant, to bring Jacob back to Him, and that Israel might be gathered to Him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations." that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And that will be our text for the evening. An amazing message is begun here by Isaiah as now he refers to the servant. But notice the servant starts with the message. He is the one who was talking in these first four verses. And he begins, notice how he starts with a command and says, listen to me. He commands the all the earth and all the peoples and all the nations, even out to the coastlands. Here am I and listen to what I have to say. And now what's fascinating about that is that's something that only God does. In the previous chapter in verse 1, and then again in verse 12, it's God, the very voice of the Lord who stands up and says, everybody on earth listen up, here's what I have to say. And it is fascinating that the servant then 
acts like God and says, okay, everybody, with the very authority of God, listen to me. I have something to say. I have something to declare to you. And then he continues in verse 1, and notice the imagery is that he has been selected to this task from the very beginning. This is something that has been chosen to him that he is going to do. Which if you remember in chapters 44 and 45, that sounds very similar to the surprising that we read about, Cyrus, before you're even born, I am calling you by name is what God says of Cyrus. Cyrus will be raised up and he will deliver Israel out of Babylonian captivity. And so you see a parallel here. Here is another servant and the same picture is given. He's been purposed to the task before he's ever born, before the very beginning of time. This is what he's going to do. But that's where the similarities end between the servant we read about with Cyrus in chapters 44 and 45 and this servant who's coming on the scene. Notice the picture in verse 2. Verse 2 he says, this is what God did. God made my mouth like a sharp sword and He hid me in in His shadow of His hand. He made me like a polished arrow and hid me as like an arrow in the quiver. Neat image that he gives here. And it sets him apart because it's a description of when this servant comes, his means of warfare and means of victory are not going to be like Cyrus, where we read about Cyrus is going to come and he is going to destroy the nations and he is going to level the place. And so don't be surprised that Babylon will be destroyed as Persia is going to rise up. This isn't how this servant is going to function. His victory is going to be completely different in that he's going to win with words. It's going to be the strength of his mouth that he is going to bring the victory, which the New Testament, the book of Revelation, zeroes in on beautifully to describe Christ. Like in Revelation 1 and verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And then toward the end of the book, as we see the Christ riding on the white horse victorious after he's trampled all the enemies, that description is given again. That the sword is coming out of his mouth. His victory comes by his words. And so, quite interesting and quite an unexpected picture. A servant is going to rise up that God has designated. And he is going to win by words, not by physical military warfare. And then the rest of verse 2 is also a little unusual because it says that he's protected and concealed by God. It seems that he's going to be held back until the right moment. That At that moment, then the arrow is going to fly, seems to be the image. He's riding around as this arrow in the quiver, hidden away until the right moment. And he's protected by God. He is in the palm of his hand, is the picture that's used as well. It is an image that we're going to see a number of times in these upcoming chapters. That the servant is pictured repeatedly as in close relationship with the Lord, in the hand of the Lord, protected by the Lord, in the Lord's favor at all times. And so here is that first revealing of that, this image. But here's the curveball, is verse 3. Notice the name of the servant that's given. Verse 3, he gives him the name and says, and he said to me, you are my servant, Israel. What? 
How does that make any sense? This clearly is a servant song. Clearly we're moving along and here we have a picture of Christ speaking as the very voice of God who's turned as the one with the sharp-edged sword that comes out of His mouth. And all of a sudden now He's called Israel. And I think it's important to notice it can't be the nation Israel because of what we read in verse 5. Notice the job that's given to this servant. In verse 5, his task is to reconcile Israel to God and to gather Israel back to God. So what the servant just said is, here's what God told me. He called me Israel and said, I want you to go reconcile Israel to me. And so the big question is, why is he called that? Why would Isaiah, speaking the very words of God, have a terminology for Christ and say, okay, you are Israel? That, I think, is one of the biggest questions of what Isaiah is doing. The answer, though, is found, interestingly, I think, and again, in the Gospel of John. And I believe the same author of Revelation and the John letters and the Gospel of John. Here is John now making use of that really from the very beginning of his Gospel. And it was a while ago that we did John 1, but we talked about some of these concepts, and I want you to see them again. One of the first introductions we get to Jesus is when Jesus is out there and we have Nathanael in John 1 verse 47 and Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and is exclaimed a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. What an interesting usage of true. What John is going to do is he highlights the concept of true. There's true. We're looking for a true Israelite who is going to be the one that accomplishes what God is supposed to have happen. Who's going to be the true servant of God. So from the very first chapter, you get a concept of who's going to be the one. John 1 verse 9. He doesn't just simply say, all right, and then there was the darkness that did not overcome it, but the light that came gave light to everybody. He uses a word true. There's the true light that came. And that's what the world has been waiting for. We've been looking for the true one to come. And the one that's the clearest, and I think John is leading up to this revelation of using true, like he'll speak of the true bread that comes and things like that. But John 15, in verse 1, when he says, I am the true vine, and then goes on to speak of his followers being the branches. What is Jesus doing as he constantly gives himself this imagery of I'm the true light, I am the true vine, I am the true bread, I am the one that you are looking for, I am true in all of these things. And when you read John 15, you'll notice that what Jesus is doing is he is taking the identity of Israel upon himself. That when you read the Scriptures and you look at the Old Testament, the vine and the fig tree stood as representation, symbols for Israel. In fact, we studied earlier in Isaiah, remember that Israel is described as a wild, degenerate vine. It is a vine that is broken, it bears no fruit, it gives useless grapes. It's not what God wants it to be. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, well, I'm the true vine. And he connects himself to Israel. Where Israel failed, Jesus comes and he succeeds. 
And this is the picture that Isaiah now is prophesying as he uses this imagery of saying, here is the servant and he is Israel. Jesus now becomes the ideal Israel. He becomes the model of God's standards to the nation, which is what Israel itself as a nation was supposed to be. They were supposed to be the light to the world. They were to be the model of God's standard. They were the ones that were supposed to teach the world. They were the ones that were supposed to bring glory to God. And how did Israel as a nation do? They failed. They failed miserably and repeatedly according to the prophets. They failed in their task. Such that you get to the book of Romans in chapter 2 and it quotes from Isaiah 52 and says that the nations are blaspheming God because of you. It gets to a point that rather than Israel causing people to glorify God, Israel's causing people to blaspheme God. And so now Isaiah says, but now the real Israel, the ideal Israel, the true Israel, the true vine, the true life, the true bread, the true one is going to come and he is going to accomplish everything that that Israel failed to accomplish. And we'll look at that in verses 5 and 6 in just a moment as he illustrates what those tasks are going to be. But that is the reason why he's called Israel, as Jesus now represents what Israel is supposed to be. He will be the servant to bring glory to God. He will be the model of God's standards to the nations. He will be the one to live according to God's law. He will succeed on every level where Israel had failed. And that's what makes verse 4 then, I think, shocking. Verse 4. The servant now speaks. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Is that not a jarring declaration? Here is the servant and says, here's what the Lord has told me to do. He called me and then he has given me a task. I am protected in his hand and I am like the arrow in his quiver. And I am now going to be concealed to the right moment to carry out the purposes of God. And he calls me his servant. He calls me the true Israel. And in the end of verse three, in whom I will be glorified. The God, the father is going to be glorified through this servant. But then the servant responds and says, I've done it all for nothing. And you go, whoa. And what you see is a picture of the rejection of what the servant's going to do. The task that the servant has been given appears to have been for naught. There is already being predicted that the servant who will come and be the true Israel and be everything that is needed for the world is going to be rejected to such a degree that the world will look at him and say, it's all for nothing. And notice what he says at the end of verse 4. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. He says... It looks like my work is for nothing, that I have done this in vain, but my vindication will come from the Lord. My justice will come from the Father, and it will not be weighed upon how people estimate me. 
my outcome will ultimately be successful, even though at the time it looks like it was for naught and for nothing. An amazing statement made here by the servant. He says, it's going to look like discouragement, disappointment, and nothingness. How true that does seem to be when you read the gospel accounts, isn't it? Is it seems that none of Israel is following along. In fact, John's gospel highlights that. That he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And here is Isaiah predicting that from the very beginning. That the very words of the servant are, I've come to save and I've come to deliver. And it appears that I've done it for nothing. But I will be vindicated by the Lord. And His justice will belong in the hands of God. That now makes an interesting picture because now verses 5 and 6 are a description of the mission. Here's what He is called to do. Verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. Notice it's almost like a big parenthetical because it's now the Lord says, and notice verse 6, He says, so we haven't even got to what He says yet. He's just pointing out, here's who the Lord is and what He's already tasked me to do. In verse 5, He says, here's what He has given me to do, who's called me to be His servant from the womb. And notice verse 5, to bring Jacob back. And that Israel might be gathered to him. The task of the servant is bring Israel back. Reconcile Israel to God. Which I think is very powerful as a reminder. You and I. No one can reconcile themselves to God. No one can reconcile themselves to God. Somebody is going to have to do something to make a reconciliation. A servant is coming with a task of bringing these people back. Gather Israel back. They can't come back on their own. We've seen that beautiful message like in Romans chapter 5. When we were enemies, when we were rebels, when we were helpless, this picture of you can't come back on your own. Something has to happen on behalf of people for reconciliation to occur. And so the task is given to the servant. And it explains why Jesus would say those very words in John 14. No one can come to the Father except through me. There's no way to do it. There is no reconciliation without Jesus. You cannot have a relationship with the Father unless you have a relationship with this servant. Unless you have a relationship with Jesus. And so he pictures that. And then verse 5 continues the beautiful picture. Why is he the one chosen to bring about reconciliation, to draw Israel back to God? Why is he the one given the task? Look at verse 5. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. That is beautiful. The servant says, guess what? I'm honored before the Father. And I find my strength in Him. He is a total dependence upon the will of God. He is completely reliant upon the purposes of the Father and will do all that the Father asks Him to do. It's one of the things that will be amazing as we move through these servant songs is what the Father asks the servant to do is staggering. 
and he will do everything that the Father asks him to do. And so he sets it up right here in verse 5. I'm honored and he is glorified through me and I find my strength in him. And I think what is how that ties to that verse is so powerful because in verse 4 he said, well, it looks like it's all for naught, but I will be vindicated by the Lord. And friends, that's all that matters. That's all that matters. The servant is saying those very words. It doesn't matter how the world perceives me. And it doesn't matter how this all plays out before everybody else on earth. All that matters is our vindication before God. All that matters is that we are honored before God. All that matters is that our strength is in Him and in no one else. And he says, that's what I've done. Even though he's rejected, even though he seems to not be received, even though his work appears to be a total discouragement and to be for naught. He says, well, my vindication is with God. My strength is in the Lord. And so I am favored because of that. I am honored in the eyes of God. So now he finally says in verse 6 what the mission is. After saying his purpose was to reconcile Israel back to God, verse 6 he says it's too small of a thing to do that. I think that's just a fascinating turn right there. And he says, now, here's what God has told me to do. My purpose is to bring Israel back. And God comes in and says, you know what? That's too small of a task for you. That's too little, too easy, too small, not enough. Let me give you a greater task. And that's what he says in verse 6. It's too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. That's too small. I will make you as a light to the nations and my salvation to the end of the earth. Too small to just deal with Israel. Let me give you a task that is befitting who you are. And the task then is this. Salvation to the ends of the earth. The restoration of the world. That is a task that this servant is worthy of. Israel, too small of a task. Here is the great task given to the servant. Reconcile the world. Bring everybody back to the Father. Bring everybody back. And give them salvation and light to the ends of the earth. And so we see the beautiful picture that Jesus is the light. He will now be that light to the Gentiles. John 1 and verse 9 again. He is the true light. He is the one that is going out and bringing people then back to God. It is Him that brings salvation to the ends of the earth. And then there's one more twist to the story. Do you know where this text is quoted in the New Testament? Because it's in the most, I think, unusual place that you would find it. You can mark your Bible here, but we're going to spend our last few minutes over in Acts chapter 13. And notice how this plays out for us. Acts chapter 13 And we'll begin the reading in verse 44, but let's set it up just for a moment. Paul and Barnabas, missionary journey, they're in Antioch. And they have preached on the previous Sabbath in the synagogue to them. There's been negative reaction from the Jews, but the rest of the crowds begged them to come back the following Sabbath and to teach them again. And so we notice it in verse 44 of Acts 13. 
The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Notice what Paul and Barnabas say. They are preaching the message and the Gentiles are receiving it. And the Jews in the middle of their sermon are reviling Paul and reviling Barnabas. They're saying awful things and wicked things about them. And so here Paul said, Paul and Barnabas say, you know what? This is exactly what was going to happen. It is necessary for us to preach this message to you. But since you reject it and you thrust it aside, we're going to go to the Gentiles. Because God commanded us to, is what he says in verse 47. Which presents, I think, an interesting conundrum. Because how can Paul and Barnabas say... That we were commanded by God to preach to the Gentiles and quote a text that is clearly speaking of Jesus. That text is of Christ. And that's the servant in Isaiah 49 speaking and saying, this is the task given to me. It is the job that is given to me. And it was too small of a thing that I would just reconcile Israel. The job given to me was to reconcile the whole earth, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And Paul and Barnabas say, yeah, God commanded us to do that. Misusing Isaiah? (laughs) The answer is what we just saw in Isaiah 49, verse 3. That's what makes this so amazing. Is in Isaiah 49 and verse 3, the title or the name given to this servant is Israel. And all who belong to him are given the same task and the same mission. That's what John 15 is all about, right? When he, Jesus stands up and says, I am the true vine. And then he goes on and says, and you're the branches. And if you're in me, you bear fruit. And anyone that doesn't bear fruit is cut off and cast into the fire. This is exactly the picture that's being given is that Christ's mission to be a light to the world and bring salvation to the ends of the earth now is a mission that we adopt because that is our task as branches within the vine. It's such a beautiful thing that when we come to Christ, what we are doing is we are recognizing and accepting the very mission that Christ was given and we will do the same.
I find it fascinating. One's an apostle and one's not an apostle. And Paul and Barnabas say, we have a job to do. And those first century Christians didn't have to wait 30, 40 years and 50 years, however long, until Matthew was written and go, oh, Matthew 28, we need to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. Isaiah had already said it. And those Christians knew it, that they were to accept the mission that was given to Christ. Christ had the mission, go out and be a light to the ends of the earth. And those first century Christians did the very same thing. And it is why we see the scriptures constantly using imagery to describe us as salt of the earth and light of the world. That this is our mission, that this is our very task. What I want to do in conclusion then is really just kind of make one simple point. In recognizing that this is the mission, this is the task, that we then are also to be lights in the world, that we are to take salvation to the ends of the earth. Let us not become discouraged or dissuaded from the mission simply because we may be rejected for preaching it. It is very difficult, I think, to continue to try to teach, reach out, and share the gospel when it does feel like there is rejection at every turn. Perhaps for the gospel meeting, you did some of the door hangers. Perhaps you were using the invitations. You were sending out emails. And nobody that you invited comes. And the conclusion is not to say, well, I'm never going to do that again. The conclusion is, well, I got to keep being light to the ends of the earth and keep taking salvation throughout the world. That this is the task that is given to us and to feel the parallel of what Isaiah 49 and verse four said, because remember what the servant says, it is for naught that I've done my work and yet he will be vindicated by the Lord. And we rest on that very concept as well, is that we have a task that is given to us. And it is not up to us to look at the immediate results and think, well, now there's no reason to do it. Nobody wants to hear the gospel. I shouldn't be sharing it with my friends. There's there's no point. Nobody will listen. Especially when we remember how the book of Isaiah started. In Isaiah chapter 6, as Isaiah is commissioned to the task, as the cry goes out of who is going to go before me, and after Isaiah has been cleansed of his sins, Isaiah says, here I am, send me, and all the sermons stop right there. But the very next words are, they're not going to listen, and they're not going to hear, and they're not going to see, and they're not going to understand. Understand the mission. That we do not look at poor results and say, well, I guess there's no point. How many times were the prophets told specifically that that was going to be the result? Jeremiah, go preach to them, but they're not going to listen. Ezekiel, go preach to them, but they're not going to listen. Isaiah, go preach to them, but they're not going to listen. They're not going to listen. They're not going to listen. 
And it is an important reminder for us then is that the success or failure of people becoming disciples is not a reflection upon you. It is so easy to get discouraged and think, well, I've asked all these people and I even was studying the Bible with my friend or my neighbor and all that. And they didn't they just didn't take. I know. The mission is to give them the gospel. The word of God is the only power that that there is to change hearts. And it's not on us about how good or poorly we may say it. And I find, as I've mentioned the Wednesday night classes a few times, I find great consolation in Isaiah 6. I find great consolation because it keeps us humble, because it's not us that bring people to Christ. The word of God is is the power unto salvation, and we're just sharing the message. It's not about you. It's not about me. Only the power of God is able to break through darkness and shine that light in their hearts. And by the same thing, it keeps me away from discouragement because it's only the power of God that can shine lights into the darkness and that can change those hearts. And it's not me and it's not you. In the words that you say, it's only in the gospel. That's why the Apostle Paul could say that he planted, Apollos watered, God gives the increase. It's not on us. We have a mission. The mission is to take salvation to the ends of the earth. At that point, it is up to the word of God and up to the heart of the individual to determine what they are going to do with that. And so we never know who's going to be interested in the gospel. Take the message of Jesus to them. Do whatever you can to find out about where they are spiritually. Ask them questions about God. Ask them questions about the Bible. Invite them to Bible studies. Invite them to join you here on a Sunday. Invite them to read the Bible with you on a once a week basis. Whatever you can do, point them to the website. Give them the materials that are sitting in the back. Anything you can do. We have tried to make everything possible for any level of bravery and boldness you have. So that you can take salvation to the ends of the earth. That was the mission given to the servant. And all the branches that are joined to the vine have the very same mission. And that's why Paul and Barnabas could say, and it was commanded of us as well. We go into the world and do the same. You pull your songbooks out, we'll sing invitation.